0: Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are joining us for part two of our discussion on One Foot in the Grave. If you haven't listened to the last episode, probably should go back because we're right in the middle of things. We're looking at series three, episode six in detail, but we're also looking at the show as a whole. And we've already talked about what the actors and the writer did before. So that's all in the last episode. So now we're going straight into the middle of the discussion. We're in the middle of the episode. And we're going to go on to talk about what happened after the show. So do go back if you haven't listened to the first part. And for everyone else, enjoy. <laughs> So we have the skip punchline. Mm-hmm. That's that story ended. We're never going to mention the skip again. We're never going to mention no. that car again. So that's that done. Don't worry about that. We've gone on to another plot now. And that plot is they're going to a, a show with Mrs. Warboys and Cousin Wolf. Now, obviously, we've set that up. But essentially, it's like a new plot starting 10 minutes mm-hmm. into the episode. And then we have this old, the old switcheroo where Mrs. Warboys isn't going with them. Cousin Wolf goes upstairs just as they arrive. The window cleaner wanders out of the garage. He's been there for all all night. Yeah, <laughs> he's
1: unconscious. Yeah. 24 hours. And
0: he's he's dazed. And again, this is about as sort of silly, cartoony, sitcom as it gets. The fact that someone has been unconscious in a garage all night is kind of not quite realistic. But it just about tracks. Mm-hmm. And again, that's kind of where One Foot in the Grave finds its limit. And again, just to mention the business. Again. You'll notice when Wilf when the fake Wolf, the window cleaner, comes out, Margaret sort of finds him and she picks up the tie that has been left because cousin Wolf decided he wasn't. Wearing A minute earlier, tie. yeah. Yeah. And she that, that was Wilf's him. excuse to go upstairs so exactly here is the tie very It well all done. works yeah. it all ties in but she's putting a tie on him which is a kind of a nice she's taking care of him kind of moment mm-hmm. she's trying to make him look a bit more presentable mm-hmm. but also it's business because if she wasn't doing that she'd just be stood talking to him and it, it, it's i i know that there was a like an hour-long conversation about how to make that work yeah. <laughs> somewhere along the lines yeah. and I, once I picked up on it, I couldn't stop seeing it, <laughs> but I really like it. Like I, I really like that you that pointed kind of it out because it's not something I really picked up on. But you are quite
1: correct. That tie—it <laughs> it served two purposes, definitely. You know, I, I, you know, you, it's sort of discarded. Oh, Wilf needs to go upstairs for a new tie, mm. and, and you think, oh, that's that—that that was his
0: excuse to go upstairs. But it comes back.
1: Very, very good. Yes, very good. Mm.
0: So then they go off to the BBC to watch a, a, an episode of a sitcom being filmed, you know, sort of slightly meta thing. A little bit of an in-joke there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, in terms of putting it in a place in the 90s, the the queue that they see that's really busy is for the Generation Game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that dates it. <laughs> yeah. the remake of the Generation Game, though. Oh, yeah, good old Generation Game, eh? Yeah. <laughs> they don't make them like that anymore, mm-hmm. thankfully. They pretty do. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so then we have this plot with the the fake wolf and he's confused. They think he's the real wolf. There's a bit of shenanigans at the TV centre and, you know, they're carrying him back to the car and stuff like that. The the fact that the, the show That's they've got to see... Yeah. You
1: know, if the guy had passed out, someone would
0: be helping. <laughs> <laughs> That's the BBC for you. <laughs> um, they go back to the house and... They bring him in, lay him on the settee, and then cousin Wilf walks in and's like, "Oh, who are you? What's going on?" And that's it. Yeah. He basically says, "I'm Wilf," and they go, "What? Who's he then?" Bit of a pause, double take, end of scene, and yeah. never mentioned well, again. We never come back to the window cleaner. We have no idea what happens to him. <laughs> and it's that is again very typical of the show that I've, they to say how often Victor kind of blows his top and he doesn't believe things. They underplay. A lot. He really underreacts to so much. Like he's so gobsmacked that he just kind of like, yeah, he does a classic double take. His jaws drops wide open. And then it just cuts away because in David Renwick's writing, you don't have to have consequences. It's fine. (laughs) You just move on to another plot line that you set up earlier. (laughs) Uh So yeah, we we go to Victor working at his new job. Now, if I was going to say to you, right, I've got one foot in the grave episode. Victor gets a job as a doorman. You think, right, I can see that being an episode. No, it's five minute sketch yeah. <laughs> at the end of something else that was completely unrelated to it. Yes. It is totally unconnected. Apart from like they mention casually, oh, starting a job on Monday, well nice, that's gonna yeah. be good. Like which has obviously just been put in later. And there's the payoff with the fleas as well. Which which is basically nothing. Like yeah. the payoff is 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 just a, a small topper
1: on the main joke, isn't it? Yeah. It's you know, a, the, the big the big the big punchline is you know he there's a, the the posh geezer are giving him a hard time and he pulls his two payoff and throws it down the drain that yeah. gets a massive laugh and yeah. then the woman discovers she's got fleas in her fur coat which you know yeah. is a topper but it, yeah, yeah. It to say like, how much
0: they how much effort they went to set it yeah. up with him scratching scratching his ankle show. three times, <laughs> Chekhov's fleas. but it's like this could so easily be a full episode or certainly the bulk of the episode with maybe a subplot running somewhere else victor gets a job and he's having a hard time because the toffs are messing him about and he takes it and he takes it and he takes it and then finally snaps and and you know he does it but because you're condensing into one five minute sketch it just it doesn't quite work as well. It just doesn't have time to breathe. You really have to hammer home with the disabled guy, like struggling to get out of the car. Yeah. Like really in a quite the cheesy... Guy, the, the guy that he loses his rag with is a
1: colossal asshole. Like there's... Yeah. N- It's perfectly reasonable for Victor to tell him to get stuffed. And that's, again, that goes back to what we were saying before about the sympathy with the character. The way he reacts is extreme. But in that example, yeah, we'd have all liked to tell that geezer to
0: stick it. But you wouldn't. And this is an unusual scene in that, like I say, really the consequences that Victor reaps are are from his confrontational attitude. This is slightly different. And we're seeing him in a different context because it's his job. It's his job to serve these toffs and basically take whatever they want to throw at him and so to to do it in that position with a very knowing knowing full well this job is gone i am not doing this job anymore yeah it is slightly different to what we usually see but because it's just thrown away in this sketch we'd never get kind of get much sense of that and this brings up a sort of further question as to Victor Meldrew's situation in general so in in episode 1 the first opening scene we set up the character we see him
1: get made get made redundant
0: Well, early retirement. Yeah, exactly. He's 60 years old, uh, so it's early retirement. He's a security guard, and they replace him with a box, (laughs) you know, that people punch a a number into it, which is obviously a little bit of a kind of technology-taking-over kind of gag. But, you know, true for a lot of people, perhaps not quite that succinctly, but, you know, people were losing jobs because of, you know, machinery (laughs) taking over your job. And because of his age, he's obviously struggling to find a new job. But, throughout the show, we see him working every now and then, and it's usually just a one-episode thing. Oh, I've got a job doing this. Oh, no, it's gone wrong. I've been fired. Oh, no, this silly thing happened. You know, never holds down a job very long. But we never get a sense that he needs a job. He wants a job because he wants to feel useful, and he wants something to do with his time. Never get a sense that he needs money, which does show in this episode that he throws this job away. He doesn't need to stay in a job... Which obviously creates conflict if you have that. If a, if you have a character who is in a situation where they're not in, they're not liking it, but they have to be there. Obviously, that's set up for most sitcoms, you know?
1: But in that first episode, the um, and this is perhaps a broader subject to talk about, the, the tragedy element of it. In that first episode, you know, he's, he's, he's a broken man when he loses his job. That's his whole purpose gone. And that doesn't translate to this, you know, halfway through series three, where he's quite mm. happy to easy come, easy go with
0: the job. The fact that he's, you know, retire, uh, retired or forced retired, it's really just a setup to mean he's got a lot of time on his hands to just yeah. get into spats with people. In those early episodes, it is about him finding purpose as well. Like yeah. he's lost his purpose. One foot in, in the grave. That You know, he's on yeah, his exactly. way
1: to the grave. That's, he, needs to, he needs to, yeah, create purpose in his life. And without work... You know, that's an existential question for the 20th century male psyche,
0: isn't it? Without work, what are we? Mm. And I think, you know, David Renwick's dad had just retired when he kind of wrote this character. I think there was kind of a lot of influence coming from that. I mean, I've seen it with my own own dad when he retired. It was Mm. just very much a loss of purpose all of a sudden. Like Mm. when you're spending 12 hours a day doing a job, all of a sudden it's gone. What the hell do you do with yourself? Even if you're ready to retire and you're sick of it, you know, it's suddenly you've got that time to kill. And I think that's a great setup, but yeah, we do kind of quite quickly lose that need for a job. But it raised the question for me, I wondered what you thought of this, about class. Specifically, what class are Victor and Margaret?
1: Well, like you said, they're financially secure and they've got a nice house in the suburbs and they sort of, they've got that middle class flavor to them, that good life type thing,
0: but he was a security guard. Yeah, he yeah, exactly. can't have yeah. been on a massive wage his whole life. And, but, you know, and maybe... Margaret works in a florist shop for uh, at first, mm-hmm. like that's her job. So again, not like she's not a solicitor or something. She's, you know, just earning a pretty but yeah,
1: regular that, that, wage.
0: They're boomers, aren't they? They bought their house early on. Yeah. Reap the rewards. Yeah. And now
1: look now and they now tell they're us. Now looking down on us, <laughs> saying we need to work harder. Now
0: they've destroyed the planet for us. I'm forty four. I don't know what I'm on about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so It's an interesting one. And again, I think this helps the kind of timeless nature of it. It doesn't feel stuck in a class system that perhaps no longer exists. I think, in fact, 1990 is perhaps the point when the class structure as we know it was disintegrating. It was throughout the 80s, you know. Mm -hmm. The working classes were were becoming non-working classes, the unemployed
1: well, classes. Well, the Thatcher years, and the people buying, buying their council houses and there was an explosion in house values. So yes, if you were a property owner, then mm. suddenly the, the the class structure and
0: relative wealth no longer went hand in hand. I don't think this program is trying to say anything about that. I think it's just set them up in a position where, okay, we're not creating a, a need that they have to make money or anything. I think it, that's right. I think you just said earlier about him,
1: you know, like, as I say, in the first episode, he's a broken man. He loses his job and then it's all right. I, like you say, it's just a setup. It's just a setup to create this scenario in which they've got time. They've got time on their hands. There's, you know, he doesn't have a job. He doesn't need a job. He can just mm. pick fights with Angus Deaton.
0: Yeah. But I think it, it is slightly odd because we see him as a security guard, but then I don't know the way we see him act and the way his kind of general behavior and personality is doesn't quite tally with that working class like, I've been a security guard for 30 years kind of thing. You know, he's quite an intellectual. He's very creative. And I don't, obviously, I don't want to say, like, security guards are just, you know, mindless, like, whatever. <laughs> but it is a job that is not particularly conducive to creativity or, or, you know, mental stimulation. So perhaps the solution to that is he finds stimulation outside of work or whatever. But yeah. you know what I mean? I think if you were just going to write a character who has been a security guard his whole life, he would come across as more of a working class bloke, and that's not how Victor Meldrew comes across. Like, if you just saw these characters without seeing that first episode, you'd assume he'd been like a middle management bank clerk, or you know, yeah. like kind it's, of that. The good life, of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if there's a point in there or not. I don't think there is really. I think it's just Renwick had a setup, and then it just wrote whatever he wanted.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is, and and it goes back to this point that you've made a couple of times about he's a sketch writer he's created as broad and as blank a canvas as he can in order to be able to paint scenarios on it. So the characters are there and they are fixed in time and there are certain things about them that are fixed, but they're not restricted in the experiences that they can have and their reactions to those experiences. Yeah. And that's why why we're struggling to pin it down, I think.
0: (laughs) So that's the end of the episode that we're specifically looking at. Mm Mm-hmm. And in this episode we see Mrs. Warboys, who's one of the other regular characters. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's, she's a nice little foil for, for Victor particularly. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you get a good view of her in this, in this scene. She's a bit, she's a little bit ditzy, not kind of stupid, yeah. but she's just sort of existing and
1: enough, enough for Victor to roll his eyes at. Yeah, but without being an antagonist.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and they use her very nicely as just being the neighbour. She can come in and set up a plot line, you know, with some gossip or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a handy character to have around. But there are a few other regular characters who we've kind of briefly mentioned, but aren't in this episode. So I, I think it'd be nice to touch on them as well.
1: Yeah, there's some recurring characters, aren't there? And yeah. it was interesting uh, watching some of the episodes. I, I don't know, In my obviously we've talked about Angus Deaton Patrick and Pippa next door. And mm-hmm. in my memory, they were, you know, regulars and they were sort of not quite in every episode. But, yeah, you know, in a lot of episodes. And they're not, are they? They're not at all. They're only in a few. No, uh,
0: they're in about a third, I would guess. Let me think. There's 42 mm-hmm. episodes. I'll quickly look this up. They are in 14 episodes. So okay. that's exactly a third. And then we've got Nick Swainey, who is the neighbour. He's in 15 episodes. So about the same. So we watched the first episode
1: and... Uh, Nick Swain is in that first episode, who and he's he's like a, some sort of social worker who works with old people, and so uh, Victor gets you know he's just retired and he gets lumped in with all these frail old pensioners, mm, which, which from which great one. comedy ensues. <laughs> but um, but clearly in my again in my memory Nick's the neighbour, but he's not in that first episode. So when does he? Is that when the house burns down and they have to go and live somewhere else?
0: They move to a new house uh, in the, the second. Neighbor in second series and their new neighbor is him and it's the same actor but also the same character he was brought in obviously that wasn't planned he was brought in as that one-off character and they enjoyed it enough that they went you know what we need a new neighbor let's have this kind of little busybody kind of annoying character so let's talk about him first Nick Sweeney the the neighbor played by Owen Brennan.
1: he's one of those people that you sort of see popping up in one episode of this and (laughs) you know in the background of that
0: yeah, and he, that's, you know, what he did. Apparently, he's been on Doctors for many years, like, he have been a regular uh, on that, okay. which obviously is a bit out of my kind of sphere. That, that's like a daytime soap, is it? Yeah. But yeah, there's um, uh, Owen Brennan and Angus Deaton, previous to One Foot in the Grave, both worked on Alexis Sale's stuff. Yes. Which now, was an Alexi Scale-based sketch show, which David Renwick was a writer for. Was he? Okay, well, I am I'm, I loved Alexi Sale
1: stuff. I was a big fan of Alexi Sale. And, you know, going back to the early 80s, he was one of the pioneers of alternative comedy. So when he launched that sketch show, Stuff, I, yeah, how old was I? I would have been sort of 14 or 15. But to me at that point, it was a really inventive
0: and interesting and really funny sketch show. I loved it. That was like Renwick and Marshall were writers for that show, amongst other things, that. yeah. So David Renwick had worked with uh, Owen Brenman before, and I think cast him on that basis, you know, I think he it was involved in going, oh, I know a guy for this part, you know, mm. and then developed it into this full-blown character. I think he, the Nick Sweeney character is often the figure of pathos in the show, because lives with he's his, a lives with his pathetic character basically yeah he lives with his mom he's yeah. sort of uh disabled mother so he's he's her carer we never see her it's kind of a bit of an in joke that she's always in the house we never see her in the later episode like right in one of the very later episodes he really confronts this idea that like what have i done with my life you know i'm 45 mm-hmm. or whatever and i'm not married i've never i'm you know, I've just sort of spent my entire time looking after my mum. I, I do nice things around the community. I help people, but who's going who's gonna to look after me? Bit of a shock to the system, something like that. As if, I don't know, someone was taunting me with a glimpse of the man I should have been. It's hard to imagine Skip Herberman living at home with his mother for 40 years running Bolus like an overgrown
1: boy scout. Sorry, Alan, how is that resolved then? I don't remember that. Um, he just sort of gets on with it. <laughs>
0: I don't think there's any <laughs> it real not resolution to it's, it? really? it's just a moment. This might be a good time to bring up another little thing, a little quirk of David Renwick's writing, which I don't particularly care for. He loves dark comedy. He loves to go tragic. Mm. He mm. loves dropping these very... Very yeah. dark moments. And I think he thinks that they're very well woven in <laughs> to the, the thing and mm. it's well plotted and structured. And again, I think that's perhaps his weakness structure. To take a dark subject and make it funny. Yes, he does do that. But it always feels a bit clunky to me. Can With I give you an example? Uh,
1: in that first episode where mm-hmm. Victor, through a series of mishaps, ends up buried up to his neck in the in the garden.
0: Right. That's not the first episode. That is episode one of series, series four, four, I think. I
1: beg your pardon. Sorry. Yes. You're, you're absolutely right. It's the pit and the pendulum. It's a classic. I, I, I've mixed them up. Sorry, but you're right. So yes, it's the first episode of series four. And yes, through a series of scrapes, Victor ends up in the garden, buried up to his neck and he's got a plant pot on his head and Angus Deaton finds mm. him and yeah. hilarity ensues. And, and we're getting these, these punchlines and these payoffs. And then Annette Crosby comes out and says, oh, my mum's just died. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said, because it was this handbrake turn and this darkness and this tragedy, but it didn't fit. It wasn't, it wasn't making light of that situation. Yeah. It was just like, okay, fun's over. This is real life. Smack.
0: Yeah. And that is something that happens time and time again in the show. And, you know, in that episode, we set up the mother beforehand and it has the whole answer machine thing that kind of pays off. But also, the mother has been an established character. We've never seen her, but you know, she goes and looks after a mother every once yeah. in a while. You know, it's it's been there, and I think perhaps the idea is, you know, sometimes people die and it comes out of nowhere. So that's how we're tackling it, and I understand that, but it doesn't mean it works. And like tonally, there are mm. these huge, like you say, handbrake turns, and I think that happens quite a lot uh, in the show in general. It's it's the it's the speed of the change of tone that's the problem. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. it's not set up. Yes, yes, we have set up the the answer machine, like you say. But it, it's a really, really funny scene. It's it's punchline, 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 smash,
0: and it mm. just doesn't work. It's 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 not appropriate. <laughs> um. So just to, I think that's quite common, and I think that is a failing, frankly, of David Rimmer's writing. Even though you know, I do think it's a good show. But I'd like to give you a good an example of when it does work. And again, mm. it's from an episode yeah. where he's writing uh in real time so in uh the episode which i think is called timeless time it's the one where they're in bed they can't sleep and you know all sorts of things are happening this is going off there victor has to go outside because the car alarm's gone off and he comes back and blah, blah blah and then victor says something that obviously triggers margaret to think about their son mm. And then they just have this little conversation. Well, it's not even a conversation. It's essentially Annette Crosby monologuing.
1: I was thinking about him just this morning, enough. Running into Guinness outside the post office with Michael. She had him just the four days before, if you remember. She was coming out of hospital just as I was going in. He's still working for that insurance company. They're talking about moving him to his own branch up north somewhere. She'll miss him. She never had any others. I always think of Stuart when I
0: see him. And this is out of nowhere. This is like series two or whatever. Obviously they've got no kids or rather there's certainly no evidence of any family and it's not been mentioned. And all of a sudden you get this mention of they've obviously had a son Mm. and he's dead. And you certainly get the impression that he didn't live long at all. Like it could have been a stillborn. Like that's how much there's. There's so little history to this child, you know. And they obviously never had any further kids, which is quite a big thing in obviously to the characters. But in terms of a story setup, the fact that they don't have kids to deal with, they've got more disposable income because of that. They've mm. got more time to just do what they want because of that. But also, they've got each other because of that, and they really have to stick with each other. Yeah. So I think that's quite an important thing that you don't have to bring up, frankly, um, but they do it very nicely. Annette Crosby absolutely nails it. Bet. And they undercut it with just a little joke to get us out of it. And then they go on with something else. It works in that. It tonally, it just, it's a bit of a shift, but it, it's nice. It gives us some character depth that never gets mentioned again. But for someone who's watching the whole thing going through, it's just a nice bit of character stuff. Mm. And I like that. But I think so often, it's not that well handled, <laughs> and it yeah. just does come like a bit of a, a gear change all of a sudden. But there you go, um, Renwick loves that kind of tragedy, also looks dark comedy, like there's <laughs> so much animal death in this show. <laughs> like, always accidental, of course. Yes, yes. But there is a lot of animal death in this show. <laughs> like, it's just like he's pushing these buttons at, like, dark comedy. Oh, yeah. that's going. I seem to remember there skin. being some controversy about that at the time.
1: Obviously, you yeah, know, no one supposed they were killing these animals for real, but I, I remember that being a thing about One Foot in the Grave. Yeah, he's got a bit of a problem with animals. <laughs> what about, um, just while we're talking about ancillary characters. Let's let's talk about Patrick and Pippa then. Because yeah. Angus Deaton and Janine Davitsky are as I say they're only in 14 episodes, but to me they felt like the next most important characters.
0: Definitely, yeah. Um they they turn up in series 2, it's about episode 3 or something. So the the Meldrews are in their new home and they turn up and the whole kind of plot of the episode is that these t- this couple have turned up, Victor and Margaret think Oh god we don't know them why I don't I don't recognize them we must know them they've come to stay because they've turned up with suitcases episode, yeah. and then obviously as you go on it transpires they're the neighbors but because they've been away for a month on holiday since Victor and Margaret moved in mm-hmm. like they've just they've got suitcases because they've just come back anyway it's hilar- hilarious and that sets up this conflict between the characters that so that, that Patrick and Pippa are this kind of normal couple just trying to go about their business. And this madman has moved in next door. Yeah. And it always plays like, we understand what Victor's doing and why and how things have happened. But Patrick never sees the background. He just sees the consequences. And I think that's a but really it ruins nice... Patrick's life, doesn't it? This is what's yes. interesting. Because as, as we talked about
1: Victor earlier, you know, he, the world happens to him and he's mm. supernaturally unlucky, but the way he reacts doesn't help. And that's exactly what happens to Patrick, you know Victor Meldrow is happening to him, but mm. he reacts really badly and he makes things worse and he's yeah. he's the mirror image, isn't
0: he? yeah, exactly. to the point where in in the very last series. Uh, Angus Deaton's character, he looks in the mirror and it kind of morphs into Victor Meldrew and he's like, well, no, oh my I mean, God. That's very on the nose, and, isn't it? And becoming him, yeah. So as they go along, he becomes more and more like him, I suppose, which is nice. I like that. I, I don't think, it never quite gets to the point where they find common ground, which is a shame. I think it's quite nice. There's one specific episode where they kind of have, they're forced together and they have to deal with each other and, you know, to some point they kind of find a mutual mm. respect, but ultimately it still all kind of falls apart in the end yeah, I mean, it's interesting casting, though. I mean, Angus Deaton, of all the things he is, I don't think anyone's ever accused him of being an actor. <laughs> but he was a sketch comedian. He was in Alexis Sales stuff,
1: as you mentioned earlier. And then he was in a program called KYTV, which was, it had originally be called Radioactive on the radio. And yeah. they made it into the TV thing. And it was, a, it was, I seem to remember KYTV was, it was kind of a satire of the then new cable channels and satellite channels. So it was just parodies of crap television programs right yeah yeah um, so very much a sketch comedian and as far as I'm
0: aware he he wrote that as well he was you know it was a, an ensemble
1: cast and writing team
0: I heard him being interviewed and he basically said that one foot in the grave was the first thing he'd ever been hired on as an actor that he wasn't kind of involved in writing and so he had to really kind of let go and just act just be the actor and do the lines he's given Yeah, look, he's not a good actor, okay? Let's deal with that. But he's he's got a very specific style. He's extremely deadpan. And I think it works. I think he's perfectly good at playing that character. And that might be the only character he can do. But who cares? You know, in the context of one program,
1: that's what he's doing. So that's
0: fine. It, It never quite fits for me. The character never quite fits in the tone. I think you could put another actor in there and it would work better. Frankly, mm. I do think that with exactly the same material and everything, he does bring a unique energy to it that is that style. And of course, Janine Davitsky, uh plays his his wife. She is again; she's like the Margaret equivalent. Like she's but, the but yeah, normal. Yeah, exactly. One. If
1: we're saying that, if we're saying that Patrick is like Victor,
0: yeah. then yes, Pippa is so much like Margaret. And throughout, uh, when Patrick and and Victor are, are fighting. The two wives are always perfectly friendly with each other and they sort of work behind the scenes to try and make make things up and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But yeah, Janine Davitsky, of course, she was, at, at the same time, she got the job in Wait, Waiting for God, in which she plays a very similar character. Yes. Yes. Um, she has quite a specific casting type, I think. But she was, she was in Abigail's Party. That was her breakthrough yes, she role. Was, blimey, yes. You see, that Abigail's
1: Party, even for me, is a little before my time, but I've seen it <laughs> yeah. 1977
0: it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that was her breakthrough on stage and then they did a the TV version of it. And she's sort of she's,
1: a, she's a, a bit like Owen Brennan. She's one of those people that you see popping up in lots of yeah. things in the background and in supporting roles. Shall we talk about the, the catchphrase? What I want to talk about is the fact that the thing that people remember is the catchphrase. If you say one foot in the grave, that is the first thing they will say. God almighty. Look what it is. It, it's that actor. Who?
0: You know... Your man from One Foot in the Grave, I I don't believe it, man. Oh, wow.
1: But having watched several episodes of this recently, the running theme for me is visual gags. Mm. There are, the, a lot of the punchlines are visual. We talked about the car and the skip. We talked about him being buried up to his neck in the garden. Yeah. Th- there's a tree planted in the toilet. A lamppost yeah. falls through the window. He picks the dog up as a phone. These are yeah. visual jokes. So why do people remember
0: it as a catchphrase-led sitcom? I don't know if it's a... Do people think of it as... They remember that line. But to be honest, even that, like, he says it, he does say it, but then it's so often it'll be, like, some variation of it. It's not like yeah. he nails that catchphrase. Like, like, he'll say, unbloody believable or something like that. You know, like, he will... Yeah variations on a kind of exasperation just, yeah. and frustration exasperation yeah it's just verbalized exasperation <laughs> that's not a great catchphrase one for grave <laughs> verbalized exasperation <laughs> and they do a very nice job i think of not just hitting that too hard and obviously it's cursed his life since <laughs> well, <laughs> that's think. my point
1: that, that's that, it's interesting to me that it has i wonder if that's father ted's fault i wonder if it was obviously it was a thing otherwise they wouldn't have made the joke
0: but i wonder if it was
1: after that episode it became more of a thing (laughs) i don't know maybe i'll tell you what we haven't talked about before we sum up it's probably worth talking about the theme tune and titles they say i might as well face the truth
0: but i am just too long in the tooth so i'm an Perhaps as well known as the the show itself, really a standout moment.
1: And I'm gonna I'm gonna show my hand and say I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Idle is very difficult to like, um, yeah. in my experience. <laughs> yeah. I think that well, okay, let's let's put all the cards on the table here. I think "Always Look on the Bright Side of Life" was funny the first couple of times I heard it <laughs> when I was twelve, <laughs> and, and now I think it's ridiculous. I think it's yeah. a silly film. A silly song. Yeah. But but that, that my general attitude towards comedy songs is pretty negative. I I, I find them quite teeth gratingly awkward. So it's not my it's not my thing. But yeah, the the song itself is well, I, I I what how many episodes have I just watched this week? Four, maybe five. I'm so sick of that theme tune. I've heard it oh man, I times. can't tell
0: you how many times I've heard it. <laughs> yeah. I've started skipping through it like at yeah. the beginning of the episode. <laughs> really? Enough, enough. But yeah, it's it's timeless. It it's not a real it's not got a really kind of 90s sound to it, I guess. No, that's true. It, it's it got in a that sense, 1960s Cambridge University sound to it. <laughs> It's disconnected, but the fact that the, the credits as well are not like clips from the show or anything like that, you know, that's, that's quite unusual. It's obviously, a, you know, it's, a, it's an old tortoise, isn't it? It's, yeah, <laughs> that's, and that's one that's foot in the thing, grave. The
1: visuals are odd. You know, yes, it's one foot in the grave. You associate it with it because it was the theme, you know, the titles. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, why is it? You know, Victor's not a tortoise. You know, <laughs> it, it's not a
0: good metaphor. But it's just an old creature that's just lumbering about. I think that's well, general Victor idea. Victor doesn't Plus, lumber. He doesn't lumber. <laughs> I, I reject the metaphor. Look, they had it in the BBC archives. It was free. <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's a very unusual set of credits. Both the song and the, the fact that they use those visuals really does jump out as unusual for sitcom. And to be honest with you, I can't tell you what the story there is. I don't know if they just sort of went to Eric Idle and went, can you do a song for us? Was he just jobbing around like, trying to earn some money, <laughs> like doing whatever it was he could Eric Idle had...
1: doing in 1990? Yeah. Well,
0: exactly. Yeah, it's been a while since the last Python film. Mm. So I, I honestly don't know the story behind any of that, but it's, it's, it's stood the test of time. People remember it. That's true. People are idiots. Of course. I did. <laughs> I did of course send you the extended version with a music video that was released. Oh man. I wondered if we were going to talk about this. <laughs>
1: we're going to have to we have to put a link to this because it has to be seen to be believed. It was. What amazing. Here, so this
0: Well, exp- explain what it is, Alan. So this was to tie in with that feature length Christmas special they did, One Foot in the Algarve. And it's an extended version of the song. So there's a couple of different verses with slightly different lyrics. And then there's this kind of awful, like, Casio keyboard dance beat. Like prefix under it sometimes, that like it feels like it's trying to be a 90s dance song.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Oh, hell, I can't hear myself. Stop it. Will you turn off that runny racket? I don't believe it.
0: Hey, tell me I am.
1: It reminded me of when they changed the theme tune. Oh, no, they didn't change the theme tune. They updated the theme tune to Blue Peter. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Oh, what is this? Why did they need to mess with that? And, you know, they make it of its time. They modernize it, which just means you are anchoring it forever in Mm -hmm. 1993. (laughs)
0: also the video is eric idol just you know fanning around in la or wherever he was living at the time and they've got richard wilson in a studio for a i would guess 45 minutes to just do some bits for it yeah. and like i've heard him talk about it he was he said like oh they they told me it was going to be christmas number 1 they promised me <laughs> <laughs> it was a novelty form, record sales i don't think it did very well <laughs> but that episode one foot in the algarve was uh, the highest ratings the show ever got about twenty million. What was it like a Christmas night thing? Yeah, I, I think it was Boxing Day. Yeah, so that makes a big ninety minute, it? you know, feature length special.
1: But it was very popular. We haven't really talked about One Foot in the Graves popularity, but at the very beginning, you know, I said my memory of it was that it was a mainstream BBC sitcom that has somehow attained this cult status. So, hmm. do the is that my memory playing tricks, or am I right? Was it a prime time? Top yeah. audience sitcom.
0: Yeah, yeah, it pulled in serious figures. I think it appealed to a large audience base. You know, it's not for the kids. It's not for the, even though it's older characters, it works on. It doesn't work as in it's for old people. So yeah, it had a, a huge draw. The fact that it stood the test of time is is perhaps the the more interesting element of that. That twenty years later, mm. people still remember it as one of the great sitcoms mm. because it was well loved. But I don't know, it doesn't feel like it was that standout one, like an Only Fools and Horses or, or whatever. Well, but
1: I think a comparison, we, you know, we've, uh, we've done an episode on Bread, and mm-hmm. uh, Bread was very much that primetime, designed to be number one in the ratings, and was number one in the ratings. Hmm. And it is remembered as just another mainstream sitcom. Whereas One Foot in the Grave has that cult status,
0: which is unusual for something that was so popular. But, but like you said, Bread... Is entirely rooted in the eighties. <laughs> like there's, mm-hmm. you watch bread and it is dated.
1: And that's perhaps yeah. So you, as you were saying earlier, one foot in the grave isn't dated
0: and is timeless, and perhaps that's helped it survive. Mm, I think so. Yeah, because only fools and horses is certainly very eighties, but perhaps not quite in the same way. I mean, I haven't got an answer really. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, it certainly has a legacy. So yeah, what happened after the? What happened after
1: the series finished?
0: Well, probably worth talking actually about the end of the series, the very last mm. episode. They knew they were gonna end it, and they chose to kill off Victor Meldrew. Mm, I remember so that. Make sure a, it never came a Big back. deal. Front page. Yeah, page. and and that is again very David Renwick, kill the character. That'll that's a big emotional impact. And it's interesting that that episode it, it wasn't a special, it was just episode six of this series that they did, but they knew the way they were going with it. But there's no build-up to it. It's not like he's ill or anything, he gets hit by a car that episode starts with margaret on the phone to someone going look i'm afraid we can't help you my husband's dead cut to a month earlier and then we see the story of how he died so they don't break they don't try and pull it out as a surprise they set it up in the episode itself i think it it was all over the news anyway that it Mm. was going to happen you know that's interesting though why from a dramatic point of view why make that decision
1: is it is, do they sort of do comedy like the you know the first 10 minutes of casualty He's, he's in lots of
0: risky situations throughout the episode <laughs> <laughs> No 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 I think I mean I'd like to give them the benefit of doubt and think it was just cheap to just kill him off just out of nowhere but, but that's cuz that's what happens he gets hit by a car it's like it comes out of nowhere and so that's too much of a, an impact perhaps and it just needs to it, you need to be able to get your audience ready for that mm especially is then you're going to have you're only going to have like 15 minutes to deal with it before you never see this character again yeah and it it plays very well it sort of ends with this ambiguous ending you're not sure how Margaret's dealt with the person who is responsible for her husband's death and uh, you know it's a sort of suitable end i think and i do like it when they know there's a definitive end and they write it in it feels like you've had you've got a conclusion yeah. then but it, it, in the post series world Um, well first of all in actual direct relation uh, Richard Wilson did kind of attempt to do a one-man show really in 2016 so he did like a one-off thing where the the episode the trial where it's just him on his own the character on his own Mm. they basically did that on stage and then he did like a Q and A thing afterwards. It was a one-off thing. I'm not sure exactly why, but it went well. And so they decided to do a run, basically of that, like a little one-man show at the uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. In, and this is in 2016. So this is 16 years this is, after the yeah, show. it's very recent. Yeah. And uh, and he had a heart attack like the week before it was supposed to happen. So it, it never happened. Basically, he was already 80 years old then. You know, it's um, mm. I'm not sure exactly how they played it if they tried to make it feel like he was older or if they just did it as it was i think it still work as is um but that's the kind of the main the only thing that's kind of come out of it directly i've read something that david renwick is publishing a novel this year called one foot in the grave and counting and I, (laughs) i don't have any further information apart from that it's a novel
1: i was going to ask about renwick and what obviously we've discussed jonathan creek which is what he did next has he done anything since then it feels
0: like Jonathan Creek was quite a long time ago. Well, Jonathan Creek's another thing. It started in 97, but the most recent special they did was two years ago or something. They, oh, really? They, oh, okay. He churns, out, he churns out a couple of episodes every year. I, I must years. confess I've never seen Jonathan Creek. It's not something I watched, but... Oh, it is very good. It, well, actually, it's very weird and, and kind of hit and miss, hmm. but there's some great stuff in there. It makes you keep watching. The first ones with Caroline Quentin are very good. Yeah, that was his big success after this. And that was a huge show as well. But then, you know, he's just doing sporadic things. He did... The the one other major thing he did was a, a show called Love Soup. It was Tamsin Greg, wasn't it? That is correct. It was Tamsin Greg. Yeah. And it, it, in my research for this, I bought Love Soup on DVD. I was going to watch it. I thought, oh, I'll give that a go and see see how it feels. I watched one episode and gave <laughs> up, but... Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that is... It, it, it's not a sitcom, which is kind of what I was thinking. I mean, first of all, it's all kind of one camera setup, no mm-hmm. laugh track or anything like that. So in that sense, it's not sitcom It's also an hour-long episode. It's much more of a kind of romantic comedy type of drive. It feels like Richard Curtis sort of nonsense, you know?
1: Okay.
0: I guess uh, something like Cold Feet or, or something like that, you know? A sort of a funny drama rather than a comedy. Yeah, exactly. And it's a weird setup. But it, again, it's sort of largely based in his own life. Uh, he, in his 40s, found love, found his soulmate and, and you know, dating and romance and, and all that sort of stuff, but with comedy. Yeah, whatever, right? It had a couple of series, I'm sure it did well. But yeah, that's about it, really, for David Remick in terms of the things that have really hit off and, and been a success, I suppose. There have been several remakes of it in other languages. Oh, really? There's a German version, a Dutch version and a Swedish version, I believe. They're, you know, much the same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps more notably, there was an American remake, right? Uh, It's, (laughs) this may give away who was playing the lead. Who do you think you would play the lead? It's made in 95. It's a big Uh, name. I'm actually thinking of Ed
1: Asner in Up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe not the the unanimated version of Ed
0: Asner. Yeah, very good. Well, the show is called Cosby. (laughs) so that (laughs) may give it away slightly so yeah obviously it's Bill Cosby I can can kind of see that obviously you know Bill Cosby's reputation is different now but I think he was about 60 at the time he was kind of right age for it you know uh, the Cosby show had finished at that point the woman playing his wife is the woman who played his wife in the Cosby Show. So obviously <laughs> they've got good chemistry, but different characters. It's not just Cliff Huxtable a few years older. No, he's called something else. But obviously it, the show is just called Cosby. Like, but that's not the character's name either. It's oh, really they do jealous. that in America. Get I know. It's just like let's just name it after him anyway. Um, I did watch the opening episode of it. It's. Just total banal American style sitcom, you know, just nothing mm. going on really. And what did they sort of uh, make three hundred and forty one episodes? Ninety six uh, 96 episodes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over five years. But there yeah, it was they took the basic concept of sixty year old man loses his job and is stuck at home with his and his wife has to deal with him. Uh huh. Go. That's it. That's basically the only kind of and he's a bit ornery, you know, he just sort of gets argumentative with people and that's it and from what I could tell it worked on the level it was trying to work on but it was just yeah kind of had that banality that those shows have (laughs) just not saying anything not doing anything just filling 24 minutes
1: I was thinking to make tomorrow's dinner tonight and put it in the fridge for you
0: I want you to do lasagna. Do lasagna for me, but you've been doing the lasagna wrong. You, you, you've been doing the noodles, the spinach, the meat, the
1: cheese. I don't want it that way. I want the noodles, and then I want the cheese, the meat,
0: and the spinach. <laughs> OK, Hilton, yeah. make your own dinner.
1: No, see, now you're getting an attitude about everything. I'm telling you, I like your cooking, but you're doing it wrong.
0: <laughs> Probably doesn't get seen much these days. Well, no, I guess that's not that's not getting repeat fees, is it?
1: <laughs> poor old um, what was her name F- Felicia something who played that's Cosby's it. wife Felicia Rashad is that it that's it that's Felicia Rashad she she uh, her you know ongoing repeat fees must have dried up recently <laughs> damn <laughs>
0: I'd be surprised she's not trying to get out and work again <laughs> oh uh, one other thing <laughs> um, just a, a funny little bit of legacy obviously Richard Wilson became much more of a celebrity off the back of the show uh, and that that <laughs> apparently meant that someone went to him and said, "Do you want to do a dancer size video for us?" And Shut up. <laughs> he agreed. There is in 1996 he did a, a video called "Let's Dance" with Richard Wilson, <gasps> and it's about dancing for exercise. I I think kind of tailored to the older person. It's not too you know heavy going. It's it's quite. A, I'm not going to do it again, but I I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I've seen the clip from the opening of it and it's just him stood there and he's like wearing a shell suit and he says because he's ready to dance he says he says when
1: they told me you can relieve stress tension keep fit and learn to dance I thought I don't believe it oh mate I hope he got paid well for that (laughs) oh Richard (laughs)
0: Oh, I mean dear. at
1: least at least the Father Ted thing you, you're poking fun at yourself it's
0: self-deprecating
1: <laughs> oh dear god
0: before we close off I do have a little quiz for you it's it's not very well structured it was just something that sort you of know that I always get
1: really stuff. cross with quizzes because I'm 44 and I can't remember anything so <laughs> you can ask me a question I'm going to know the answer I'm not going to be able to remember the answer I'm going to get angry let's go
0: <laughs> Well, no, this is just, I'll try and sort of structure it like a quiz, but I wanted to mention that there's quite a lot of famous guest stars over the years, you know, comedians mm-hmm. and comedy actors that drop mm-hmm. in for an episode or two. So I'll try and sort of structure it as a quiz. Okay. So, um, which member of the Young Ones appears in the show twice, possibly three times, depending, depending on how you define it? Well, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to guess it's Chris Ryan, because he was the only one who was a, really an actor. Christopher Ryan is correct. Although I will tell you that the other three members of the Young Ones all appeared in Jonathan Creek uh, in really? multiple episodes. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, but Christopher Ryan does not appear in that, but he does appear in this. So he's in one uh, an early episode as like a, a, a plumber. You know, he's just doing his thing, and then several years later, he's in another episode. Uh, weirdly. Uh, playing like a handyman that's come to fix something, doing something. Mm. But he's playing identical twin brothers. Oh my God. And much hilarity did ensue. Well, that's the thing. No hilarity ensues. And not just in the sense of they try something and it fails. They don't use the fact that they're identical and there's two of them. It it just doesn't get used at all. I don't (laughs) know why it's there at all. Odd writing occasionally. Okay, another one. Um, which member of The Goodies appears in One Foot In The Goodies? I know, I know
1: this one. I know this. Ooh. This is Tim Brooke Taylor, who played the new neighbour in one of the... Was
0: it in the last series? Uh, the, the, did they replace Angus Deaton? It's one of the specials before the last series. But yes, okay. they're the new neighbours who move in. And then in the last series, because obviously he wasn't available or whatever, they just went, oh yeah, they moved away somewhere else I know so he, he, he didn't become a recurring character they just did him for that one special but yes you're correct Brooke taylor uh okay two cast members of on the buses appear any ideas could you even name anyone not really other than reg varney uh, <laughs> uh well stephen lewis who is blakey he is, appears in an episode oh, where no. they go down to visit some friends in a hotel and michael robbins who is arthur in on the Buses, the brother-in-law character he appears in it as like the guy delivering a a skip or something like he's just a tradesman and then weirdly in another episode in that same series i heard his voice and it's like a it's a person shouting out of a window and you don't see them it's just a silhouette but they must have just got him to record it while he was on set doing the other thing because it's definitely his voice you recognize his voice yeah okay you'll get this two stars of the film quadrophenia the two stars of the film uh, Quadrophenia the the two
1: people that come into my head are Phil Daniels and Sting but I can't believe Sting (laughs) no not
0: Sting Phil Daniels yes (laughs) Phil Daniels plays like a deranged criminal who's trying to kidnap Angus Deaton at one point interesting good (laughs) casting
1: I I guess Leslie Ash
0: no no oh yeah I did not thought that Ray Winston Uh, oh Ray Winston was in One Foot in the Grave I did not know that yeah, just as a one-off episode. He was another one who was doing a lot of jobbing acting around that time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he just popped up in for one episode as a, a criminal who was pretending to be a police officer. God, I'd love to see Sting in One Foot in the Grave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question. Two people who are probably most famous for being in carry-on films. I'm going
1: to guess Jim Dale. No. Oh, uh, <laughs> give me a, is it a man or a
0: woman or is it one of each? They're both women. All right. Barbara Windsor? Barbara Windsor is correct, yeah. Whoa, she plays, that was a long shot. <laughs> she plays the role, and this was like pre-EastEnders. I think I heard someone talking about it, like she got the job on EastEnders while they were filming it, and she was like, oh, I'm not supposed to tell anyone yet, but I'm going to be on EastEnders. So like it was just pre-her kind of renaissance. Oh, I see. Um, and she plays someone who is a kind of a, a loose woman who is trying to seduce Victor, and Margaret has to go and read her the right act. <laughs> and the other, the other woman is Joan Sims, Uh, who appears in the One Foot in the Algarve episode in a a very odd appearance where they're on the plane and she's like in the seat next to Victor and she's another passenger and Victor's really nervous about flying. He's apparently scared of flying and she has a couple of lines and then it cuts to them getting off the plane. It's over. (laughs) I can only assume something has been cut out because first of all, you don't get Joan Sims for that part. It was just a nothing part. And they did this whole big thing about Victor being afraid of flying that just goes nowhere. That is becoming a bit of a theme, though, Alan. <laughs> you can't tell with David Renwick. Like, sometimes things just go nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get John Sims in here for this dead end. <laughs> you wouldn't have got her in. There must have been a deleted scene in there. Because, <laughs> you know, she was she was in... That was about the time she would have been doing As Time Goes By as well. She kind of mm-hmm. had a little semi part in that, a regular part in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it. There's other... Some other big comedy names. Brian Murphy's in an episode. Uh, John Bird is in it, uh, an really? episode. Peter Cook, of course, we've already mentioned. Uh, yes. yeah. They did had some. They had some big names in there uh, along, the t- along the times, but that's okay. So they they because they had so few kind of regular characters, it was very easy to just drop in a one off episode. Someone in, someone's yeah. come in to do this, you know. So that's one foot in the grave. Well, you know, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that discussion, and I've enjoyed watching the
1: episodes, and I think it does really hold up well for a thirty year old sitcom. I agree, yeah. I, I think it's got that timeless quality. But I reflected on this earlier. I started this podcast saying the writing's really tight and, you know, the setups and the payoffs are all there. Mm-hmm. But I totally accept what you said about some of those <laughs> setups and payoffs being there for no other reason than just to pay each other off. Yeah. I, and I think you're right about that That idea of, you know, it's several subplots, several sketches just lumped together in a half hour. But the fact that it took this discussion for me to spot that <laughs> suggests that it's well done. It's you know, it's put it's
0: it's a jigsaw that's very well put together. It does get away with it and, and like I say, I think it's an extremely consistent show in terms of it's the level it works at and the comedy that it works at. I do think it gets a bit better as it goes along in terms of story structure. I think that's just mm. David Renwick getting better at writing for this length. There's not much in terms of the characters finding their feet or anything like that, or them developing much over the years. I think they're pretty much set out as they are. And I think it works really nicely. A, a great company, a very precise writing, uh, but in the way that works, great acting, you know, very solid casting for the two main actors principally. I think you could replace Angus Deaton, for example. I think you could replace Owen Bremnan, although I do think he does an excellent job for that part. But, you know, I think those two principal characters that carry the show, just they've got chemistry together, they obviously play off each other as characters and as actors. It's great. And I think this is something that will still work in another 30 years, frankly. I I don't think anything's going to change dramatically. Mm. Yes, I agree. Um, And, uh, you know, I have perhaps pulled a few strings here and, and pointed out a few flaws but I uh, you know it, ultimately it's a sitcom I don't expect too much I don't expect like narrative beauty really it's it's just it's there to deliver some gags and, and it does that well thank you everyone for listening to the
1: British Sitcom History Podcast you can find us on social media at BritcomPod, Pod mm-hmm. and we will see you soon to talk about another sitcom Yes, more sitcoms
0: coming